Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to the 90th episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast. That's right, 90 episodes. And wow, am I excited about this one and potentially I have bitten off more than I can chew. Anyway, why am I excited? Because this episode, the 90th episode, happens to coincide with the 90th birthday of the ASA, the Australian Society of Anesis, being formed. That's right. On the 19th of January, 1934, the ASA was formed, making it the fourth medical organisation to come into existence in Australia. Technically the third, because one of them was the Australian branch of the British Medical Association. Anyway, we will go into that in a bit. As I said, I may have bitten off more than I can chew because for this episode, I'm going to try something a little bit different. I'm going to go back in time. We're going to be hearing from the current president of the ASA and some of the past presidents, including Dr. Don Maxwell, who is himself in his 90s. Basically, I'm celebrating everything 90. I mentioned that we're going to be going back in time. Well, I could go back to 1934, which is when the ASA was first formed, but I actually want to go back even further. Let's go back to 1844. There is no ASA and it will be another 90 years before the society will be conceived. In fact, there isn't even any anesthesia. Is there surgery? Yes. Yes, there is. Surgery without anaesthesia. Yes, it is painful. Yes, it is dangerous. In some hospitals, the mortality is over 50%. What else is happening in this year, 1844? Well, I'm no historian, but in the Western world, we are in the Victorian era. Women are wearing long skirts, tight bodices and bonnets, while men are donning long coats and top hats. Charles Dickens sets his great expectations in this era, And he also introduces the world to Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre falls in love with Mr Rochester. Here in Australia, British colonies grow along the East Coast in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, as well as in South Australia. Perth has just been founded as the first free settler colony on Wadjuk country, but is not yet established and convicts will arrive in a few years' time to build roads and public infrastructure. Ludwig Leichhardt sets out from Jimbore in Queensland's Darling Downs and heads to Port Essington way up in the north of Australia in Arnhem Land. Two centuries later, Google Maps will tell us that it's a 42-hour drive, but this trip takes Leichhardt 15 months. In Science and Technology this year, in 1844, we hear Samuel Morse tapping out the world's first telegraph message. We discover how to vulcanise rubber, And sadly, the great orc, a bird that looks a lot like a penguin but is not a penguin and that you can actually catch with your bare hands, is strangled, rendering the species extinct. Coming back to anaesthesia, 1844, the founding of the ASA, still 90 years away, and nitrous oxide is used for therapeutic purposes for the first time ever. A dentist by the name of Horace Wells goes to what is called an ether frolic. Uh, I'm a little bit confused about what this term actually means. One version is that it's a public gathering where a visiting lecturer gives members of the audience or the public ether or nitrous oxide to breathe. And whilst they're under the influence of ether or nitrous oxide, they do silly things and entertain the rest of the crowd. 
The other version is that an ether frolic is basically a party where people get together and get high on ether and nitrous oxide. Now, I wouldn't recommend you try this at home. So Horace Wells, the dentist, notices that people are also bumping into things and not registering any pain. There's no regulation of drugs and poisons at this time, and scientific methods are somewhat less robust. So he does what most medical scientists of the day do. He goes home and experiments on himself. Horace Wells sees the therapeutic potential of nitrous oxide and begins to use it on his own patients. And he does so very effectively. He's so convinced about this groundbreaking discovery that he is keen to demonstrate the technique to his peers. However, he's based in Hartford, Connecticut, where at the time there is no hospital. So he ends up contacting a former student of his by the name of William Morton. Morton works at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and is able to facilitate a demonstration. During the demonstration, the patient cries out in pain and the technique is deemed a failure. Despite this experience, William Morton is not deterred and he will successfully demonstrate the use of ether a couple of years later, in 1846, in that very same room. That room still exists today and it is called the Ether Dome and it looks very much like a theatre, as in somewhere you'd go to see a play, not an operating theatre. Greg Deacon, who is president of the Society from 2004 to 2006, has visited the Ether Dome and this is what he has to say about it. Well, it is like a theatre. There is seating where people can all sit and watch and then there's this place where the surgery took place in the middle of the room. It's not all that big, but uh, for an anaesthetist, it's very moving. Like many things historical, there is some controversy as to who was the first to discover nitrous as well as who was the first to discover ether. And we'll come back to this controversy later. However, William Morton is widely credited as being the first dentist and physician to publicly demonstrate the effective use of ether as an anaesthetic in 1846. Can you imagine what this means for the world of surgery in this time, the 1840s? Finally, a reliable means for surgery to be undertaken painlessly. What a breakthrough. But was anaesthesia safe? Well, in 1848, less than 18 months after Morton's public demonstration of ether, the first death under anaesthesia is recorded. The patient's name is Hannah Greener. She is 15 years old, otherwise fit and healthy, and had previously had an uneventful anaesthetic. She has administered chloroform and then starts to deteriorate. It's not clear whether she dies from the anaesthetic or the resuscitation attempts, which include giving her water, brandy, and attempting to bleed her. So there you have it, 90 years before the ASA is formed, from people getting high at parties, anaesthesia is discovered and painless surgery becomes an option. And less than two years later, the first death under anaesthesia is recorded. This leads to the recognition that anaesthesia could be dangerous and to improve its safety, it needs to be recognised as a science as well as an art and that for its practice, there must be training and teaching. I'm quoting there from a historical book by Dr Gwen Wilson about the first 50 years of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists. So essentially, over the subsequent years, doctors with an interest in anaesthesia start to get organised and form anaesthesia societies, with the first being formed in the US and in the UK. And it is in this context that the Australian Society of Anaesthetists was formed in 1934, 90 years ago. I asked Dr Mark Sinclair, the current president of the ASA, the significance of the 90th birthday. 
Yeah, well, it certainly makes us one of the oldest uh, medical societies, probably the oldest, I think, because even the AMA wasn't so the AMA back then. We were simply a branch of the British Medical Association. And so, of course, we've been in continuous existence for 90 years, serving the interests and uh, needs of our anaesthetist members in all sorts of ways, educational, scientific research, representational, of course, and connecting and supporting our uh, specialist colleagues. And so to be turning 90 is quite an achievement for any organisation, I think. There were seven founding members of the ASA, Gilbert Brown, Geoffrey Kay, Gilbert Troop, Harry Daly, Ivor Hotton, George Leonard Lindley's, and the surgeon, Cedric Duncombe. Although in many references, the founding of the ASA is largely attributed to Geoffrey Kay, who was the first secretary. The ASA started as a small organisation. Here's what Dr Don Maxwell, who was president of the ASA from 1982 to 1984, has to say about the early ASA. So I've been part of the ASA for... 65 years, actually, been a member. The, the ASA began in 1934 and then had about 40 members, most of whom were general practitioners. And the ASA is part of its constitution because nobody much gave anaesthetics in the ASA. They're, they're all general practitioners. Ether was discovered and all of a sudden, the, you know, in the very early days, all of a sudden people began to give anaesthetics. They'd give one or two a, a year, some of them, and one or two a month, others. And anyhow, in 1934, a group of them, about 40 of them throughout Australia, came to Adelaide. There was no AMA even at that stage. It was a BMA. And there was a section of anaesthesia of the BMA. The AMA came later. That section of anaesthesia decided to form a society of anaesthesia. And the purposes of that were to advance the standards of anaesthesia, to teach anaesthesia, to look after and encourage anaesthetists, and there are other purposes for the society too. But it was a group of people with an idea that you'd advance anaesthesia. And of all that 40 people, I think there are only about three or four or five who earned their living giving anaesthetics. So specialist anaesthesia very hardly existed. There were four main reasons that the ASA was formed back in 1934. The first was to improve the status of anaesthesia in Australia. At the time, anaesthesia was not recognised as a medical specialty. The second reason was to support the exchange of ideas and information between anaesthetists in Australia and those from overseas. The third was to encourage research into anaesthesia. And the fourth was to publish papers in anaesthesia. These goals, although established 90 years ago, are still the backbone of what the ASA does today in terms of advocating for anaesthetists, organising an annual National Scientific Congress and other educational offerings, supporting research through grants and awards, and publishing the only scientific journal from our region, which is called Anesthesia and Intensive Care. It comes as no surprise that there have been significant changes to the practice of anaesthesia in Australia over the last 90 years. Perhaps the most significant has been the recent advancement of technology, particularly with regards to monitoring. Past President Don Maxwell first started practising in the 1960s. He describes a time when monitoring was very primitive. In those days, monitoring in anaesthesia was very primitive. You watched the colour of the patient, you watched their breathing, you watched their airway, and you measured their blood pressure by pumping up a you know, blood pressure cuff. And they were the only real ways of monitoring people. Greg Deacon started practising anaesthesia 20 years later in the 1980s. And here he is describing a few more advances in monitoring. 
there was an ECG and then after that it was just clinical. You had to look at the colour of the patient and look for if they were sweaty, feel their pulse oximetry hadn't been introduced, there was no gas analysis. There were CO2 analysers. You could get one if you're doing a neuro case and it was a very, very big machine you'd wheel into the room to analyse the CO2 and that was one for the whole theatre suite. There was oxygen analyzers, they were special. You could bring that in and use a paramagnetic oxygen analyzer to analyze the oxygen you were delivering if you were lucky. There were disconnect alarms. Sometimes you had one of those, sometimes you didn't. Monitoring was very primitive. Interestingly, you, you had arterial lines and central lines and even Swan-Gans catheters were available for cardiac. Greg also experienced the introduction of automated blood pressure machines, something that exists in many clinics, let alone hospitals, nowadays. We had blood pressure cuffs, which you'd take the blood pressure, blow it up and feel the pulse, get the systolic pressure. There was just been invented these things called Dynamaps who did automatic blood pressures for you, and there might be one of those for the whole theatre suite if you had a difficult case. Another huge area of advancement was in the medications that we use. Craig Deakin describes his experience of the changes to volatile anaesthesia in the 1980s. When I started, we had nitrous oxide and halothane, and towards the end of my training, they introduced enflurane, which is, I think, an isopher of isoflurane. But before that, I did, used a lot of cyclopropane. Cyclopropane was popular in my obstetric training because it, it was very good for keeping the blood pressure up. The patients went to sleep very quickly and woke up quickly. The only trouble was they had extraordinary nausea and vomiting afterwards, and it was explosive. That was the other bad thing about it. But one of my consultants, he used to let the surgeon use diathermy so long as the humidity was adequate. So he'd measure the humidity in the operating theatre, and if it was above about 60%, he'd use cyclopropane and let the surgeon use diathermy. I was always somewhat hesitant to work with him in those circumstances, but we didn't have an explosion. Cyclopropane, and if it exploded, of course, took out the whole operating theatre. So it wasn't like ether, which would just have a bit of a fire. We often think about patient safety, but thanks to this advancement, we don't have to worry as much about blowing up the operating theatre and our own safety. The other big category of medications that has advanced has been that of the muscle relaxants, particularly in the 1980s. For a description of this, once again, I return to Greg Deacon. The other big thing that happened, we used to have a lot of training as registrars on how to deal with the anephric patient because all our muscle relaxants were eliminated via renal excretion. So if they were anephric, how do you paralyse them? And then one day they invented atricurium and that, that was all no longer an issue. And that came around in about 1980s. 85, 86, but before that came, you were limited to pancuronium and alcuronium and detuba curare, and it was an issue. All of these advances have been described elsewhere, although I have really enjoyed hearing firsthand from the people who were there to see these changes happen in their clinical workplace. What I've also found fascinating is what this meant for the practice of anaesthesia. Tom Maxwell recalls a time when intubation was rarely performed, a practice vastly different from that of today. A fellow in our Australian experience a man called McDowell, I think from Newcastle in England, developed and popularised a technique using endotracheal intubation and controlled respiration, paralysing the patient, and it revolutionised the management of neurosurgery. What else do we stick into people? 
Bob Hare, who was president of the society prior to Don Maxwell from 1980 to 1982, and who also trained in the 60s, recalls the use of glass cannulae rather than the modern single-use plastic ones that we have today. He would do a cut down very, very expertly and uh, sew the glass cannula in. As far as uh, Mr. Dr. Dreverman was concerned, they were going to last. Whereas a cannula, even our modern cannulas, they get clagged up and friction and all that sort of thing. So that's, that's what he did. Have you seen a glass cannula? They're tapered and the end is not square. The very fine end is tapered. Then it's got to be sewn, you know, tied in. So um, I'd be doing this with a patient asleep, of course. Bob also describes that the person who put that in was someone called a resuscitationist, a medical person who would handle the post-operative care on behalf of the surgeon. Which then leads me to consider, how did anaesthetists work? What did a day in the life of an anaesthetist look like? Well, in the 1960s, anaesthetists would have to provide their own anaesthesia machines. I can see that there are a lot of things wrong, particularly in private anaesthetics. Anaesthetists had to supply their own anaesthetic agents They had to have their own anaesthetic machine in a private hospital. They would have them in the back of the car, carting this machine around that you'd have to lift out of the car and another bag with all your drugs in it, and you'd go and you'd give your anaesthetic. I, after three or four years as secretary, drew up a document on minimal standards in anaesthetic to try to persuade private hospitals that they should provide these things There was a Minister of Health in New South Wales at the time who'd formed a group called the Patient Care Committee. And Brian Dwyer was a member of that. And he saw this document that I produced and he put it forward to the Patient Care Committee, which was developed by the Minister, and they adopted it as policy. I thought that was a good thing that they did it. But what had never occurred to me was that this had legal significance. If hospitals didn't have these facilities... And the Minister for Health and his department say these are the minimal standards. They were legally liable and they suddenly realised that. So all of a sudden, within a year or two, private hospitals bought anaesthetic machines. They provided all sorts of equipment and they conformed. Why do they conform? Because they'd be in trouble if they didn't. And in the 1980s, Greg Deacon recalls having to provide his own medications and keeping them stored in a somewhat secure manner. It's not that long ago, in the early 80s, but it was certainly a different way. And some of the places I went to, uh, you had to bring your own drugs as the anaesthetist. And that went through till around the early 90s. You were supposed to supply the drugs. You didn't have to bring your anaesthetic machine as they did in earlier years, but you did have to bring your own drugs along. You'd buy them. No, and you wouldn't store them safely. you put them all in your locker. So when you came back next time, you got all these drugs out of your locker. In the next hospital, you'd go to the pharmacy, you'd buy the drugs, you'd stick them in your locker. Then when you came back again, you had your thiopentone and your muscle relaxants and all in the locker. They'd give you adrenaline and some aramine, but that's about all you got. The requirement for hospitals to provide anaesthesia machines was brought about by the work of the ASA. So during this time, the ASA itself was becoming more and more sophisticated. The first headquarters of the ASA was in the home of Geoffrey Kay, who you might recall was the first secretary of the society. However, at some time, the ASA and Geoffrey Kay had a falling out which left the ASA homeless for a period of time. Eventually, this changed, as both Don and Bob describe. When I started, the um, secretariat 
of the ASA was the secretary of whatever state the president was in, one or somebody would be the secretary, a working leastist, and they would put out a newsletter and do all that sort of thing. And then they decided, Ben Barry was one of the pushers of this, that there should be a paid secretary. So that was Sue Butterworth, and that was in 1970. And she worked from Elizabeth Street, which was the rooms of the first anaesthetic group in Australia. Well, then they bought in 79, 50 Gurner Street, in Paddington as the headquarters. I was lucky enough to be, I think, the first or second president to be involved in that. But even still, the Secretariat was actually one of those spandex folders with all the stuff in it. It's amazing how the uh, ASA is now. It was a pretty amateurish setup then, uh, a a really very well-organised corporation, if you like. And uh, with computerisation, with uh, mobile phones and all that sort of thing, the ASA has taken this uh, and uh, used it for um, communicating with with patients, of course, and uh, members of the ASA. And there are so many things going on with the ASA. When I have a glance at the... uh, magazine. That's been marvellous. I think it really is working very well. Under Ben Barry as the secretary of the ASA, he felt that we should have a full secretariat up till this period of time. Now, there's the first 30 or 40 years of the society. The secretary of the society operated out of his own office. That's where the ASA operated. And he'd have all these documents in a briefcase and they were the records of the society. Pretty primitive. Ben Barry recommended and it was agreed that there be a secretariat and the first secretary, I'm talking about employed secretary, was appointed, it was Sue Butterworth, who was absolutely fantastic. And the group that I belong to volunteered premises. They could use part of their premises for an office for the society. That was the first office. That worked for a while, but eventually the work of the society expanded They needed their own premises. So we got those, bought a building in Paddington in Sydney, and that became the Secretariat. And although the ASA found a new home, could the relationship with Geoffrey Kay ever be repaired? One of the biggest contributions of the ASA has been in developing a robust guide for anaesthetists as to how to bill for our services. In the early days, anaesthetists were paid by the surgeons which doesn't go too far in terms of being that extra safeguard for the patient and an independent advocate for them. It was 1951 that the Californian Society of Anesthesiologists introduced it, and it was about 1961 that the American Society introduced the Relative Value Guide. And, and then Brian Pollard went over to America in the 60s and he, he came back to Australia and to the ASA saying, this is a, a really good system for determining our fees and rebates. And there was a number of reasons, and it wasn't really due to money as the primary reason ever in my mind. You've got to understand what was before then. Before that, the fees and the rebates were based on what the surgeon had done or said they'd done. And the surgeon, if they've done an appendicectomy, then your anaesthetic would be anaesthesia for appendicectomy. And so you had to wait for the surgeon to send their account and tell you what item numbers they were using before you could send yours. If you go back into the 1920s and early days, the GP would refer their patients to the surgeon and the surgeon would often expect that GP to provide the anaesthesia and they might charge 20 guineas or 25 guineas and they would give the GP one guinea for giving the anaesthetic and for the referral. And you were very much an employee of the surgeon. 
Eventually, anaesthetists were seen as specialists in our own right and were able to make up their own fees. But there wasn't a system to make it fair and equitable across all the different types of anaesthetics that could be provided. I'm not quite sure how they judged it. I remember when I started in practice, i say, what should I charge for this appendix that I'm looking after? And I'd be told that was the rate. That How that it's similar, I don't know. It really made no sense in most cases. For those who aren't familiar with the Relative Value Guide, it's a very simple system. It assigns complexity and it also assigns time in terms of units. There's intrinsically no dollar value to the unit. That can be assigned later by various health funders. It's just a way of describing relatively what we do in anaesthesia. Craig Deacon, who spent many, many years introducing the RVG into Australia, is probably best at describing the advantages of it. And the Relative Value Guide was one of those things which made us independent of surgeons. We could determine our accounts immediately the anaesthetic finished based on what we'd done, not what they'd done, and our fees were based on that. And that's the great beauty of the Relative Value Guide. It's all based on units and whether a unit's worth a dollar or a hundred dollars, it's the same system. It determines rebates and you can have whatever rebate that the insurers want to provide is fine but that's the system. Similarly, whatever fee you want to is up to you to determine. But the system of the relative value guide meant it was based on the anaesthesia done, not on what a surgeon said. Plus, it's easily computerised and very easy to understand and also doesn't have to be changed all the time. The surgeons can keep coming up with new operations, but it's just anaesthesia for heart surgery and that's it. It doesn't have to change with every new procedural item number. The relative value guide just adapts automatically. So it it has many great features. Don Maxwell and Greg Deacon were particularly involved in introducing the relative value guide into Australia. That was a a 13-year job. It was November 2001. It was a long, hard road But I was young and I had great passion. I believed in what I was doing and I had a wonderful team about me. So we started by, um, I got to know the uh, bureaucrats in the Department of Health in Canberra and had a number of trips down there, but I realised we weren't going to make any progress unless we met politicians. And next thing we had a meeting. And that was the first time the ASA had ever met with a politician, as far as I know, certainly a federal politician, a federal minister for health. So when we met with Graham Richardson, Our first issue for discussion was the care of veterans and he agreed and we got a major change and we just put on an hourly rate similar to what we were getting in New South Wales for treating public patients and uh, much less than we were getting for treating active servicemen. So we got that achieved and we then went to Michael Wooldridge who was by then, he was the minister in the first John Howard government in 1996. Um, again, with why we should have the relative value guide for all these reasons. You know, the system was what had to change and the fees charged was up to the individual anaesthetist, but the system of the relative value guide was what we wanted. And he said, well, that's fine, but it's got to be cost neutral. And that was no problem at all. And so therefore we had to do surveys and work out what would be a cost neutral value. So this went on from 1996 till November 2001. The cost neutral features had to be adjusted and there was a slight change in the unit value in the year or two after it was introduced. But everyone was happy with the final result and the unit value too. The ASA hasn't only been involved with the economic aspects of care that is delivered in the private health sector. 
In the early days when the ASA was formed and right up to Don Maxwell's time in the 1960s, most medical specialists would work in private practice and weren't paid anything to work in public hospitals. This meant that anaesthetic services weren't always reliably available. Here, John Maxwell describes his involvement in ensuring that all medical specialists were paid at the same rate in public hospitals in New South Wales. When I first started uh, at St Vincent's and for a long time afterwards, the doctors, all of them, the surgeons, anaesthetists, physicians, all came along and worked for nothing. Directors of departments were appointed around about the, I suppose, in the 50s. The anaesthetic department had a director and he had honorary anaesthetists. The honorary anaesthetists came along mainly in the afternoons, not in the mornings. In the mornings, the anaesthetics were given by the director, salaried, and by the registrars. In the mornings, the honorary anaesthetists earned their livings in private practice in my time. Remember, there weren't many specialist anaesthetists about. Weren't many at all. The teaching hospitals had them. The suburban hospitals might have one or none. Again, the anaesthetics would be given by the residents who were there who were very inexperienced or by nobody. They'd go to other hospitals if they required surgery. So it was just not satisfactory because sometimes the the doctor concerned, the honorary as he was called, would say, look, I'm busy today, I can't come this afternoon or this morning. What would happen? They just weren't looked after. They uh, didn't have their surgery. So the government wanted to introduce a staff arrangement where they had staff specialists and VMOs, visiting medical officers, and that's what Neville Rand did. Now, that caused all sorts of upset in the medical community. People don't like change for all sorts of reasons. But eventually it came in and the doctors were paid at a particular rate. It went to the arbitration court and they determined that all specialists were paid at the same rate and the specialist rate was determined by this court. So it was a statutory decision. Anistas found that coming onto their lists at the public hospital from earning nothing, all of a sudden they were being paid and sometimes being paid incredibly well because the arbitration court had determined their rate according to what they were worth on an hourly basis. There were some people who gave a lot of their time, half their time, for instance, to a public hospital, and all of a sudden for half their time was being paid. One of the main drivers for the advancement of technology, medications, having anaesthetists who are independent from surgeons, is safety. Recall that less than 18 months after anaesthesia was discovered, the first death was reported in a healthy 15-year-old girl. Surgery in the Victorian era, and even in the 1960s, was only undertaken when it was absolutely required due to the risks of anaesthesia. Absolutely no question about that. Particularly, we didn't do cosmetic surgery when I was young, when I, when I started, also the young. Why? Because there were uh, huge risks then of anaesthesia. We didn't give someone an anaesthetic unless it was absolutely necessary. And then as that anaesthesia improved, and the other thing given by specialists, in inverted commas, then uh, a lot of other procedures uh, ensured. As you heard from Bob there, One of the biggest contributors to safety and anaesthesia was ensuring that there were specialist anaesthetists. And in order to create specialists, they need to be trained. Again, the ASA played a key role here in terms of establishing the faculty of anaesthetists of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. This would eventually become the training institution we now know today as the college or ANSCA, but not until the 1990s. 
The ASA in the early 1950s set up the faculty, established it, and then it started to do training and examinations of anaesthetists. And, the, and so we started to produce highly trained specialists and the quality of anaesthesia got better and better. Remember at the start, I mentioned the first death under anaesthesia barely within a few years of anaesthesia being discovered. Well, following that, there were numerous commissions and surveys of deaths which were attributable to anaesthesia. That work continues to this day, and once again, the ASA has been heavily involved. Death from anaesthesia disasters was, in 1930, about one in a thousand. By 1960, it was one in 10,000. Now it's one in 250,000 due to anaesthesia. So we've come a long way. One of the things that I thought that was a real step forward was the incident monitoring system, which had been happening for many years with Bill Runciman on a paper-based model since I was a registrar. But we realised that this anaesthesia incident monitoring with Bill was something that had run its course and that I had very good relations as president with Michael Cousins, who was president of the college, and with the New Zealand president of the Society of Anaesthetists. And we decided to uh, together form a, a joint project to have anaesthesia online incident monitoring. And I think that was the beginning of a great project. And it's gone on from there with Martin Colwick only just stepping down now as the medical director of that. But that incident monitoring being online is is, uh, really a good thing to have done and continues to thrive. As Greg says, WebAirs continues to thrive to this day. I personally am still involved with WebAirs and I've done a number of podcasts on it. So please do check out the links in the podcast notes if you want to find out more. Bob Hare describes an event with one of his anaesthetics that we rarely see today. I gave an anaesthetic for a young man having a nose operation, septoplasty or something like that. Towards the end, I, uh, you know, as we all do, turn off the nitrous and turn on the full oxygen, and um, he went blue. <laughs> I was thinking, how? What are the ways that a patient can go blue? So what I did was I tried to turn on the oxygen cylinder. Because yeah, maybe oxygen's not coming through for one reason or another. And anyway, I couldn't do that because the orderly who looked after the anaesthetic machine had the key to the oxygen cylinder in his pocket and he was out having a smoke. So, so anyway, the problem was it was the nitrous oxide oxygen switch. Because, oh no, what had happened is that it was the first anaesthetic after the holidays. And during the holidays, they had to service the suction. And the suction oxygen nitrous oxide came down in a single pennant you know, that came down from the ceiling. And there was a template through which the oxygen, nitrous oxide and suction too, I think, came. There wasn't any key to tell you which hole to put the oxygen pipe and which one to put the... Anyway, uh, John Mainland took that on and got things changed and coded. And the other thing that's important is that uh, the director of anaesthesia or some responsible person checks the equipment after uh, there's been servicing These developments, such as the sleeve and pin index systems, having anaesthetists commissioning gas supplies, they came about because of the hard work of our forebears, who fell into misadventures such as these, had to manage the situation and care for their patients safely, and then who chose to work on developing systems where these mishaps couldn't occur again. So there you have it, a potted history of the ASA. What does the future hold, I wonder? When Bob Hare trained and practised anaesthesia, anaesthetists were less involved in perioperative medicine. 
Yeah, that's very interesting, Piri. I must keep up with that and what's going on about that. But so anaesthetists could consider themselves well enough trained to be uh, able to look after post-operative complications. And when I'm saying that, when uh, I worked doing bowel surgery and I'd get involved with post-operative pain, but when something went wrong with the patient, then a, um, a physician would come along, it was the same physician all the time, and do the post-operative or perioperative management. I, I didn't consider myself well enough trained or had enough knowledge to look after somebody, for instance, who was going into cardiac failure or something like that. Anaesthetists becoming involved in perioperative medicine makes sense, as we have a good understanding of the physiological stressors of surgery and what is required to optimise patients prior to their surgery in order to prevent and best manage any complications that occur after surgery. As Greg outlines, it is important for us not to be regarded just as technicians. I think perioperative medicine by anaesthetists is good because it's good for patient care, but it's also good for our status as doctors. And I I don't think anaesthetists should be locked in the operating room as technicians. The importance of seeing the patients preoperatively, postoperatively, and being available to help on the wards and in casualty and other places, providing a a comprehensive service, I think it's very important. And I'd be hoping that becomes something that anaesthetists do more, more and more of. And our current president, Mark Sinclair, thinks that this will continue to be important for anaesthetists in the coming years. I think the idea of which our college is heavily involved in of perioperative medicine will be a, a big thing, I think, especially over the next decade or so as it really starts to get a foothold and gets established in, in day-to-day practice because it's a very necessary thing with all those various issues we face with an ageing and more medically unwell population. I'm no expert, but my prediction will be that that will become an increasingly important focus of our work. We can all uh, learn about drugs, and there's always new drugs on the horizon, We can all learn about new airway management techniques. We can all learn about new electronic monitors. But I think putting all that together over the next uh, couple of decades and moving on further into the future will be a big uh, part of where we go when it comes to patient care. In terms of the next 90 years, I wonder whether we may be replaced by robots or AI. I like the question Bob asks as to whether there will even be surgery or anaesthesia in 90 years' time. Well, hopefully we won't need anaesthesia in 90 years. And well, well, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I think anesthesia eventually you probably won't need it. I mean, so many things are now not requiring surgery. They're being treated in one way or another that's different. I would think they might be able to perfect electronic ways of keeping the brain anaesthetized and that sort of thing. And anaesthetists may not be around. Will we be around in 90 years? Oh, I mean, the humankind. Before I leave you to contemplate that, I want to come back to two things. One is Geoffrey Kay. As I mentioned, Geoffrey Kay was one of the founders of the ASA and also housed the ASA in his home in Melbourne in the early years. He was a great inventor, teacher and collector of anaesthesia equipment. There was some parting of ways between Geoffrey Kay and the ASA at some point and he ended up donating his museum collection to the college. Well, I'm pleased to report that there was some mending of the relationship between Geoffrey Kay and the ASA. I discovered what happened when I asked Don Maxwell to paint us a picture of what the 50-year-old ASA looked like because that's when he was president. It was fairly mature by this time. We had our own premises. We were a very functional part. We had regular meetings and annual general meetings and we had our own journal, which still exists, which was set up by Ben Barry. We were fairly mature and we participated in the World Congresses. We had delegates going to the World Congress. Anesthesia had developed quite a way. 
And that year, 1984, there was a World Congress in Manila, in the Philippines. And we decided that we would celebrate our 50th anniversary by having a post-Congress meeting in Australia. We had it in Sydney. And we held it at the fairly new Sydney Opera House. We had an opening ceremony and visitors came on from the World Congress. The World President of Federation of Societies, John Bonica, came. And people came from Japan and from all over. And it was a very big meeting. We had an opening ceremony with the Royal Australian Naval Band performing. And we invited, ah, there, I was the convener of the meeting, and I invited the two living, the only two living original founders of the society. Geoffrey Kay was one, and the other was Ivor Hotton, who had been head of the department of Prince Alfred's Hospital. Ivor Hotton was unwell and in a convalescent home in southern New South Wales and couldn't attend, but Geoffrey Kay came along, and that was a wonderful experience. I'd never met Geoffrey Kay till then. Oh, he's an extraordinary man, a very different man, very erudite, but different. Geoffrey Kay was full of history, full of knowledge, and a great presence. He spoke and introduced the Jubilee meeting. He spoke to the assembly there in the Opera House. Geoffrey Kay was a Melbourne anesthetist who was a very dedicated man. He really was the brains behind the establishment of the society. There's a lot you could say about Geoffrey Kay. He founded the museum down there. Look, he was the organiser, put it together. But towards the end of his anaesthetic career, he... Um, became difficult. The society used to meet in his in his home and he had quite a nice home. And part of the home he gave to the society for its use as the premises, the original premises of the society. But there were all sorts of conditions and it didn't work out anyhow. So they decided to move. And Geoffrey got very upset about that and there were all sorts of difficulties. So to cut a long story short, he and the society became alienated and that had gone on for a long long while and he didn't want to have anything to do with the society. When I invited him to open the, the 50th anniversary meeting, he was absolutely thrilled to bits. He just, he obviously wanted to come back to the society, wanted to belong. It was, it was his baby. Well, I think it was one of the greatest moments of his life. And uh, it was a great moment of my life, too. And I could see the pleasure in the man. So he came back and he gave the opening speech and he was quite a good guy. In recognition of Geoffrey Kay's contribution to the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and to anaesthesia in Australia in general, at the end of their term, each president of the ASA is invited to deliver an oration in his honour. And finally, I want to come back to where I started this story with the discoverers of anaesthesia. You will recall that Horace Wells discovered nitrous oxide. There was also some controversy, and it was actually Crawford Long who discovered ether. But it was William Morton who's credited with successfully demonstrating both of these agents and being the founder of modern anaesthesia. So what happened to Wells and Long? When Horace Wells demonstrated nitrous oxide at the Mass General, the patient cried out in pain and the technique was deemed a failure. However, the patient later admitted that he felt no pain and had no recollection of the surgery. The surgery being a tooth extraction. This is a situation which many of us would recognise and that vocalisation does not always equate to awareness or nociception. 
However, Wells, along with the rest of the medical community, regarded this as a failure. He returned home to Connecticut the next day and it is claimed he fell ill, although his physician could not find the cause for his symptoms. Within a few weeks, he put his house up for rent and dissolved his dental practice. Over the subsequent three years, he opened and closed his dental practice nine times and in six different locations. He ended up moving to New York, leaving his wife and young son behind and became addicted to chloroform. Under its influence, he threw sulfuric acid over two prostitutes and that landed him in jail. And whilst in jail, he suicided. This was three years after his attempted demonstration of nitrous oxide. He was 33 years old at the time of his death. Crawford Long, on the other hand, had discovered ether before William Morton. He is described as an educated and elegant man, anaesthetist, surgeon and pharmacist. Rather than publish his work, he wanted to undertake further research and repeatedly confirm the results of his experiments. However, when Morton was credited with discovering ether, Long sought recognition for his earlier discovery by going to great lengths to publish his work and have others confirm his discovery. He even lobbied as US senator. But despite his efforts, he never received the full credit that had been snatched by Morton. The reason that I mention these controversies is that I can't help but wonder what might have happened to their careers and perhaps their lives had there been an anaesthesia society in their time that could have supported and encouraged their work as well as them as people. I'd like to think that today, whether you are a cautious researcher, a bold publisher, an anaesthetist with a substance use disorder, or anyone in between, that the ASA is able to support you in some way. And with that, I want to thank the presidents who contributed to this special 90th birthday episode of the podcast. They've not only contributed to this podcast, but they have also supported and contributed to me in my leadership journey, as well as deepening my understanding of anaesthesia. Dr. Mark Sinclair, current ASA president. Dr. Don Maxwell, who in his 90s is the oldest past president. Dr. Bob Hare, who is the earliest ASA president still with us today. And Dr. Greg Deacon, who was president 20 years ago in 2004. I hope that you have enjoyed getting to know them and hearing about their experiences. Did they differ much from your own? How did I go with my attempt at being a historian? Feel free to let me know by sending me an email on podcast at asa.org.au. I hope to be bringing more episodes from these and other past presidents during the year, as well as the usual episodes on webairs, talking money, and the other goings-on of anaesthetists in Australia and beyond. And with that, I'm going to announce that I'm going to take a small break from the podcast. This was a mammoth episode to produce. Regular listeners, thank you for your support, by the way, will know that the podcast comes out every fortnight. I'm suggesting that I'm going to take a brief break and perhaps enjoy some 90th birthday celebrations. So until then, to all the ASA members who support and contribute to the ASA and to those of you who support and listen to this podcast, I hope you too are enjoying the ASA festivities and are staying safe and well out there. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie Newt with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934 and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anaesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. 
In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge, and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favorite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening.